Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Welcome back to the Red Seat Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I'm joined not only by Matt Corey of BP Boston, but we also have a special guest, Chris Hatfield, the executive editor of Sox Prospects. Um, Chris, Matt, thanks for joining us today. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, was, I was waiting for you, Matt. But yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm uh, I'm geeked to uh, bother someone else on their podcast as opposed to making everyone come on to ours. So you know, we blew one person's mind on Twitter with this idea. I don't know if you, uh, you saw that Chris, but when yes, I dude. tweeted this at you, like someone was like freaking out about how worlds were finally colliding, uh, here yeah. with these two <laughs> podcasts. So, uh, we're, we're doing a solid for a couple people out there at least. We, we aim to please. Um, so for everybody out there who, uh, likes the Red Sox, you ought to follow both of these gentlemen. Uh, I will give you both of their twiddle hand, Twitter handles, twiddle handles, uh, right now. Uh, Chris can be found at, at SP Chris Hatfield, and Matt can be found at the wonderful at Maddie Maddie 2000. Um, and today, what we're going to do is basically uh, use Chris's immense knowledge base of the Red Sox system to help us break down the state of the system today, um, see where some of the recent draft picks that the Red Sox made might fit into. Uh, the prospect rankings, and um, then we're going to talk about how the heck we can use some of these guys to fix third base. Um, so why don't we get right off the bat into the, uh, the, the dirty situation that is third base here. Um, a couple moves were made today by the Red Sox. They placed Pablo Sandoval on the DL with a ridiculous uh, inner ear infection. 
Um, and they recalled Devin Marrero. They also sent down reliever Austin Maddox and recalled Sam Travis uh, to spell Mitch Moreland, who's dealing with uh, perhaps a broken toe, if I hear correctly. Um, so as a result, what we have is uh, Devin Marrero and Josh Rutledge starting at second and third, respectively, uh, for a team battling for first place in the division. Not exactly an ideal situation. Um, so right off the bat, this is bad news, guys. I, I want to say that I'm kind of surprised they sent Maddox down. I, I think that it's entirely possible he's a better hitter than Josh Rutledge and maybe should start in the third base. <laughs> Well, it's funny because his teammate in college was Brian Johnson, who uh, I guess I'm coming right in with the the prospecty stuff. But when Brian Johnson was at Florida, he was the nation's best two-way player. Uh, he won an award as the best two-way player in the country. So he was actually quite a proficient hitter as well. So um, there are probably some people, I'm not one of them, who may actually try and make that argument as to Johnson at least. Uh, he was a first baseman too, right? Was that his yes. position? Yeah. So. Yeah, I believe so. I mean, it made sense. You, you saved the guy's arm, but uh, he, he definitely could swing the stick a little bit, too. Yeah, that's that's definitely interesting when you get those two-way guys. Um, so let's get to this third-base situation. Christian Vasquez had to actually fill in for an inning uh, yesterday in a very strange situation for the Red Sox. And this is a guy who hasn't played the position since basically the low minors. Um, this position needs to be addressed. And my question to you guys um is and and specifically to you chris here is that um is rafael devers a potential replacement at third base right now do you think that they're going to bring him up as a solution in this problem or do you believe that he's going to stay in the minors the entire year to continue to uh to develop here for for those of you listening his line so far this year has been extremely impressive his 14 home runs 297 batting average uh, 354 OBP and a six, uh, f- 569 slugging percentage. Uh, so pretty impressive slash line there from the youngster. But what do you think they do, Chris? You know, I don't think they're going to bring up Devers yet. Uh, Devers is really hitting the cover off the ball right now. I, I think he's got a couple of home runs in the past couple of days uh, or, or past week. Um, I think he's got two or three home runs. He's just, he started the year really well. Uh, got hot, went into a bit of a slump, and he has come out of the slump, which to me is kind of the the last step, so to speak, uh, where you, that you like to see out of a guy. You, you hear a lot about making an adjustment to the adjustments, right? You go around the league once or twice, pitchers adjust to you, the book gets out on, on how people need to pitch you, and uh, you need to adjust to the adjustments, and that's exactly what Devers has done. He's kind of done that at every level, and, and he's doing that right now in Portland. I almost kind of wish we were talking a couple nights from now because the Carolina League is at their all-star break right now. And I have kind of a theory that what might happen is that uh, Devers might get promoted to Pawtucket this week. And Michael Chavis, who has been probably without too much uh, without too much uh, debate, the best hitter in the system so far this year, uh, he is actually in Salem right now and he's playing in the all-star game tonight. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets promoted to Portland rather than going back to Salem. And that would be a good time for the Red Sox, perhaps, to promote Devers to Pawtucket, uh, at least. As for coming up to Boston, I think the fact that we haven't seen him yet means that they don't think he's quite ready yet. Mm -hmm. I know that everyone says, well, Andrew Benintendi skipped Pawtucket and Yohan Moncada skipped Pawtucket. Well, you know, they could legally drink. Um, Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> they were they were of course i sound like an alcoholic between this and us talking about beers before we started recording but um but i mean devers right now he uh he's going to be 20 years old all season long he turns 21 in october uh he's a lot younger it's a different situation than with andrew benintendi who played for two years in the southeast southeastern conference you know in the sec one of the best if not the best college baseball conferences uh yoan mancada who played for years in cuba in their professional league so it's a different situation different situation i think we could see devers maybe maybe in july if he goes up to Pawtucket and shows he can handle it uh, i just don't think we're going to see him quite yet uh it, i don't think he's quite there but it, i would be surprised if we don't see him at all in boston this year i just think people maybe need to pump the brakes on him as an option in the very very near future at least yeah so, chris so go ahead matt no i just had a so Chris, you would expect like if the Red Sox, uh, you know, made the playoffs, um, Devers might. There's a there's a strong possibility Devers could be the starting third base, a la sort of uh, Xander Bogarts in 2013. I think that's probably a more realistic timeline, honestly, Matt. And the thing is, too, Devers actually has something of an advantage if you think about it, in that he is a third baseman <laughs> as opposed to a guy, you know, who, who had to move there um, coming down the stretch like Bogarts did. But I think that's maybe a little bit of more of a realistic timeline. Um, Dave Cameron at Fangraphs actually had a really good article a while ago. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that or not. Maybe you need to edit that out. But No, we, we um, plug Fangraphs all the time. It's okay. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> good. All right. But, um, but he had a really good argument for why the Red Sox should maybe give Devers a look sooner rather than later here, with the argument being that you need to know by mid-July if you need to trade for someone, right? You know, you can't be figuring out in August if you need to trade for anybody because guess what? The trade deadline's already passed. So there's an argument there to maybe get him up sooner than later, but the fact that Devers is still in double-A, I know that they he's been in there for as long as he has perhaps because they wanted him working with uh, Portland's manager, Carlos Fables, is regarded as one of the better infield instructors in the system, and that makes sense, of course, given that he was, in fact, a major league infielder for a long time. But uh, they, they like having him work with Fables. But I think it really starting it's really starting to feel like the time has come for him to move up. Um, so that's why I say Pawtucket in the very near future. But, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see whether they try and give him a shot before they trade for someone or if they just see him as someone who can come up in August. Um, but, yeah, I think down the stretch, if they're in the playoffs, uh, to kind of get back to the point, He's a guy who maybe could win that job over. Look, they tried to do that last year with Yohan Moncada in September. So, and that was just more of a, hey, his season's over. Uh, you know, the minor league season had ended. You know, it's not like we're we're taking away at bats he would be getting in the minors. Let's give him a shot and see what he does. Um, I don't think this will necessarily be that far along before Devers gets a shot. But certainly they've shown under this regime of, you know, Dave Dombrowski and John Farrell that they're willing to try things late. Wouldn't surprise me if they maybe gave him a shot uh, in maybe August or even September. I wonder how much it has to do with how much a guy like uh, Moustakis is going for on the market, um, who, yeah. uh, by the way, just took Chris Sale deep. So uh, I now intensely dislike him and don't want him on the team. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I want him on the team more uh, now because of that. Yeah, um, a degree of difficulty. So um, let me ask here, um, Devers, the, the big knock on him, or I guess not, not necessarily knock because he's always been a very highly regarded prospect, but the biggest thing that he had to work on when he was in the low minors was the defense. And, you know, oftentimes people said it's 
possible he moves over across the diamond to first base. Um, what sort of things does he still need to work on? If you were having that discussion, if you were kind of uh, playing uh, Red Sox uh, farm director here, what sort of things do you still want to see him work on? Uh, well, frankly, he, he has a lot of areas of the game to work on. And it's, it's a it's a factor of, you know, when a 20-year-old is a very good prospect like Devers is, where he's, you know, consensus one of the top 20 guys in the game right now. That's not saying they're major league ready, even when they're in double A. It's just, like I said, it's different than when it's a guy like Benintendi who's played high level college ball. Um, he's always actually been a pretty good defender. You know, when he was in Greenville with Michael Chavis, who was the first round draft pick in 2014, selected ahead of Michael Kopech, even um, who had played shortstop in high school. You just kind of assumed that Chavis would be the better defender. But uh, I remember going to see Greenville with Ian Condal, our director of scouting, and we were both surprised. Devers was easily the better defender. It mm -hmm. wasn't close. Um, the reason a lot of the talk about Devers having to move to first base came came about was because even when he signed at 16, he was a big boy. Mm -hmm. um, it was one of those situations like when you look back and it's like, oh, hey, I remember when Carlos Delgado was a catcher in the minor leagues. Ha ha ha. Yuck, yuck, yuck. You know, and then you looked at Devers and you're like, OK, yeah. He's probably going to grow. He's 16, and he's going to need to move to first because he's just not going to have the mobility to play third. Um, he's actually kind of sneakily athletic. Um, he can move. He's got a plus, if not double plus arm. So he's got plenty of arm for third base, and he's got pretty good hands. He's got good feel. Um, he does a decent job coming in on balls when he needs to charge balls. Um, it's just kind of rounding out that part of his game. The organization actually named him its Defensive Player of the Year last year, which it sounds different than what it actually means. It doesn't mean he was the best defensive player in the system. It's really kind of a defensive achievement award for a guy who's actually a prospect, if that makes sense. I think it was more rewarding him for the work he had done on his defense mm -hmm. to make himself. I think he could be an above average defender at the major league level. I'm not worried about the defense um, offensively, you know, maybe some pitch recognition, maybe a little bit of approach he could work on stand a recognized spin, recognize pitches coming in. doesn't mean he's got a problem with them or anything like that, but it's just as part of moving up the ladder, getting used to those things. And I think that's part of why he could be well served to go to AAA where he'll, where he'll face guys who used to pitch in the majors. He'll face guys who are up and down guys that, you know, could be in the majors next week if the team needs them. Uh, so I think that it will more for him than for some other guys be an important development step uh, in kind of rounding him out. Again, I don't think there's any kind of glaring weakness to his game so much as it's just kind of the polishing of a younger guy who was signed at 16 and, and maybe had come in a little bit raw just by definition of his age. Triple uh, A should basically just be finishing school for him. I think he's probably about ready for that. He's showing at this point that he's he's all set with uh, Portland. I think he's more or less shown he can handle the level and he's ready to move on. His isolated power number is the highest in the system. I think I was seeing today it's like – 250 or something wow yeah that's uh, a so he's hitting number. he's hitting for lots of pop and he hits for pop to all fields i always say i think i've seen him personally and it's kind of tough for me living in the dc area but i've seen him personally play and i think five or six games and i've seen him hit six five or six or seven home runs just by pure luck um you know a couple different multi-home run games from the guy so i've seen the pop firsthand it's to all fields the spray chart is completely even he's not a guy you're going to shift on so you know again it's just kind of finishing school at this point and just making sure you've got all the details down and you know he may have some hard knocks when he first comes up to the major league level too he's had an adjustment period at almost every level he's played at so i would expect the majors to be no different but 
that said, he's a you know really mature kid, a, a real kind of uh, dirt dog in the sense that he's always out there wanting to work. Uh, you know, he went and sought out Carlos Fabulous before the season started to work on a, a plan for him to get extra work on defense uh, before every game. So that's the kind of kid he is. He loves being out there and he enjoys it. He, you know, he plays the game with a smile. It's kind of the Ken Griffey uh, intangible, I guess, if you want to call it that, where he looks like he's having fun out there. So I think he's a guy that, you know, once he, he gets used to the major league level, will be very productive for them. It's just a question of whether at the end of this year, you're kind of rushing it a little bit, not in the sense that it'll hurt his development, but, um, you know, it's helped by the fact of where the bar is. If they had someone there that they could rely on, even if he was more of just an average regular, I think you'd prefer to see him get a little bit more seasoning. Um, but we'll see where he goes. It's it, Like I said, it's finishing school at this point, and then we get to see him unleashed. Well, I, I'm certainly very excited to see him uh, get that promotion at AAA, so I hope that he does that because as a Massachusetts guy, it's a lot easier for me to yeah. buzz down a Pawtucket than it is to uh, get up to Portland. So um, mm-hmm. we, we've had enough of Matt Collins hoarding him to himself up there. <laughs> Fair. Fair. Um, yeah, screw Matt Collins. Yeah, well, anytime you get a chance to say that on here, that's a good thing. Um, but, uh, I, I want to ask just for, for our listeners out there so they can have a little bit of, of something to dream on. What sort of player do you see Devers developing into as he gets into the pros and sort of, uh, gets some time here? Maybe by the time he's 24, 25, what type of a player are we looking at? Uh, definitely. I think at least average defender at third base, if not maybe above average with a plus or double plus arm, uh, at the plate, it's a potential plus hit tool with plus power. Uh, so you're looking at a guy who hit for, I think, maybe a 280 or so average most of the time, might have some years where it's up around 300 with, you know, 25 to 30 bombs is what you can dream on. Uh, he's also the type of guy that's going to pepper the wall. He's he's really good at going the other way. So he's the type of left-handed hitter who Fenway is going to be really kind to. So uh, I think he's a guy who's potentially going to hit in the middle of the order for the Red Sox. Um, you know, you look at dream on a potential top of the order with Betts, Ben, and Tendi. Uh, you know, maybe the, the kind of end of the Pedroia run, Bogarts and, and Raphael Devers. I mean, that's a potential great top five of your lineup. And I think he'll fit in quite well with that group. And I have just finished purchasing my jersey. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a huge Devers fan, in case you can't tell. it's it, Part of it's just out of the games I've seen him, but it's just, he's a fun player to watch. The swing, it's crazy. The amount of bat speed that he generates. I think we can talk, we call it controlled chaos. Or, or controlled, uh, I forget what the word we used. It was like, it, it's like a hurricane, but in a controlled way. You know, it, it's it's not one of these Andrew Benintendi kind of poetic looking lovely swings. It's it's a loud swing, but he knows exactly where the barrel head's going. It's, 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 it's he's a fun guy to watch hit. It's calculated violence. Yes, oh, controlled violence. That's the word. Thank All right. You. Yeah, we found it. I appreciate it. Go team. <laughs> um, <laughs> So it's well known around these parts, uh, BP Boston, that um, the the player who is most near and dear to my heart uh, resides in the minors, Blake Swihart, um, and he has been done wrong by the organization, in my opinion, over the last couple of years, and his development suffered a little bit. Um, he's having a little bit of a rough go at it right now. He's batting 205, 256, 330 on the year. Um, did just have the home run, I believe it was yesterday or the day before, I can't remember. Um but I want to know, what type of a role does he have on this team going forward? What's his value? Is this a, a, the type of a player that the Red Sox would consider trading at this point? Um, I just want kind of a check-in all around on how my boy Swihart's doing. 
Yeah, he's definitely not hitting great this year, that's for sure. Uh, he's certainly not helped by the fact that he missed a decent amount of time uh, with basically the way he was catching the ball. He he didn't have a single injury, but he basically took a bunch of foul tips off of his finger, uh, one of his one of the fingers on his catching hand, so on his left hand. And so basically they DL'd him for about two or three weeks, maybe even longer than two or three weeks. I can't quite remember, but he missed a fairly significant amount of time just healing up because his fingers swelled to the point where he couldn't grip the bat. Um, So they basically sat him down and they were basically saying that they were going to try and get him to catch the ball differently to protect his finger. He he also doesn't wear a batting glove under the mitt, which, uh, you know, hopefully he might come around on, frankly. But, uh, you know, coming into the year, I would have said he's a guy that they wouldn't be interested in trading. But that said, you look at this team where, A, they don't have a lot of tradable assets at this point because of all the trades the team has made. And that's kind of been my biggest problem with the, uh, you know, Dave Dombrowski trade all the prospects approach. It's not that you are trading prospects. It is not that you are trading a lot of prospects. It's the, the fact that the number they gave up and the player, the number of players they got back. At this point, they're left with a top three of Rafael Devers, uh, who and guys who are truly prospects endeavors uh, Jay groom down in the minors down in low a, and he's actually on rehab assignment in Lowell right now. And, uh, and Sam Travis, who we of course came back up tonight uh, to the major leagues. After that, the talent in the system falls off a cliff. Uh, even if there's some guys that you can get kind of excited about, it's just, there's a vast gap between those three guys and everybody else. Um, Swihart might be one of those guys that you may have to think about trading right now. And, and a couple of years ago, I remember uh, there was the trade deadline where there was some rumors that the Red Sox were going to trade for sale. I guess, I guess it was last year. It was after the jersey cutting incident. Uh, some rumors were flying. And I, I talked to someone in the Red Sox front office up in Frederick. And he was kind of running down the guys that they definitely wouldn't move. And Swihart was one of the ones he named uh, as a guy who he didn't think that they would move in that kind of a deal. Um, but that's where the ask would probably start. So he's very highly regarded in the organization. Uh, it's funny entering the year. I was uh, my kind of line was it's strange where Sandy Leone was opening the year as the team's starting catcher, but meanwhile the organization was probably hoping he wouldn't be around by the end of the year because you would have hoped that Blake Swihart and Christian Vasquez would have forced the team's hand into making them the two primary catchers. Um, right now it looks like Swihart's going to be down all year and maybe come up in September to be the third catcher. He's just not hitting enough. And I think part of that might be working on the defense. Uh, I'm actually with you, Jake. I was pretty PO'd about the fact that they moved him to left field last year, not because it led to the injury, because I think that easily could have happened catching. I mean, if anything, probably more likely to happen with him catching, right? He's a catcher. Catchers get hurt. Um, I think that was just a fluke thing, but it was just more of the, he needed the development behind the plate. He needed to get the work back there. And I wasn't convinced that it, the bat was enough of an upgrade to justify making the move. Wound up backfiring spectacularly in a way that you really can't blame the team too much for, but now you've got a year of development that's gone. So he's playing a little bit of catch up. Um, we saw with Sam Travis at the beginning of the year that there was a little bit of rust that needed to be shaken off. And hopefully that's part of the deal with Swihart, especially where he's had kind of a stop and start season. Um, but that said, the the value is certainly not where it once was. Uh, if I were to rank 
where he would be in the system where he's still prospect eligible. I'd probably, he'd at least be behind groom endeavors right now. And I'd have to really think hard about whether he or Travis would be the number three guy, but he'd be still be top four. Mm -hmm. But that said, he's definitely not nearly as untouchable as he once was, especially if the team decides they need to go get a third baseman or maybe needs to go get a starting pitcher. If someone gets hurt or something like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, maybe he's a guy who could be moved. I think that's a good point, but I haven't given up on him by any stretch of the imagination either. I think next year, if you go into the season with Vasquez as the primary catcher and Swihart backing up and working his way in, I'd be okay with that. Yeah, I mean, it seems like he still certainly has the ability to do so, and it, you just hope that he gets a fair shake either with this organization or another to, to prove his skills because there were a lot of pretty uh, pretty enticing comps put on him when he was a prospect. I remember people comparing him to Posey, and I mean, that might be a little bit of a stretch, but can you talk about what type of hype was around him at his peak? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the that's it was the Buster Posey tool set was was what uh, I think might have been a Jim Callis were, uh, phrasing, and I really liked that. You know, he was a guy who would be able to hit um, at least very well for a catcher. And I think sometimes when you have a catcher who can hit, people get a little bit confused about what that means. We weren't saying it wasn't that Swihart was going to hit enough, you know, this year everyone's saying, well, why isn't Swihart working out at third base? You could maybe call him up and put him there. He's athletic. Right. And it's like, well, yeah, he could certainly handle playing the position defensively, but I don't think it's that kind of a special bat where, you know, people forget Bryce Harper was drafted as a catcher, but they got them. They got him the heck off of catcher because a, it's going to get him in the majors quicker and B it's going to preserve his body for longer. Swihart didn't have that kind of a special bat. This, the, you know, Bryce Harper, Will Myers type of bat where you move him off the position. He had the type of bat where he was going to be a potential all round, very good catcher uh, who could, you know, field the position behind the plate. I think he had kind of that rough debut in Boston defensively. And a lot of people thought that he was a guy who couldn't catch defensively. He has the tools to be a very good catcher. In fact, I, I was very impressed by his catching in Portland. I remember tuning into a Portland game that was on Nesson, uh, when uh, Eduardo Rodriguez was making his first televised start for the Sea Dogs after they traded for him. And I was more impressed by Swihart's uh, 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 work behind the plate than I was by Rodriguez pitching. And that's not a knock on Rodriguez. I just was really happy with what I saw from Swihart defensively. He's a guy that basically could be above average across the board, really. And I still don't think that that's necessarily something that's out of the question entirely. It's just, you know, he maybe has a lot of work to do to get back to that status. So, I haven't soured on him yet, but it'll be interesting to see how that development path works out at this point. Yeah, it'd certainly be a, sh a shame to see that happen uh, in another organization because I do think, like you said, he did get a little bit of an unfair uh, shake there when it came to the defense. I mean, he, he did struggle at the major league level, but he adapted relatively quickly uh, throughout his time in the minors and became a pretty respectable defender in a short period of time. So, yeah, hopefully things work out with him. Um, Jason Grom, though, that's a guy that I want to talk about here because uh, I know that Ian was out to see him. Ian Kundal was out to see him uh, yesterday when he made his debut. Uh, did yes, you and sir. Ian get a chance to uh, chat about Grom and what sorts of things he noticed uh, watching Grom for the first time this year? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I chatted with, the, with, Jay, uh, with Ian, not Jay. I didn't chat with Groom. Um, but I chatted with Ian. Ian. Both Ian and our assistant director of scouting, Chaz Fiorino, were at the Spinners game last night to see Groom pitch. Uh, he was making his first start since uh, the first week of May. Basically, in, in Groom's first start of the year, he went out and strained his lat, uh, went down to Fort Myers to rehab it, and he's basically been down this entire time. 
frankly, the fact of the matter is that when you've got a guy who's by far your best pitching prospect, you're going to handle him with all of the kid gloves, uh, you know, several sets of kid gloves at once, frankly. So that's part of why they held him out until now. And frankly, as a high school draftee from last year's draft, pitching in Lowell isn't too far beneath him that, uh, that you know, it's a joke or anything like that. But he apparently looked really good. Uh, he sat 92 to 93 miles per hour in the first with a plus curveball, which is what Ian and I saw from him in spring training. Uh, we got to see him pitch over at the Rays complex. Uh, it's it's easily easy plus curveball that just overwhelms guys. Uh, did it last night in his first start in a long time. And, you know, I remember just being really impressed with it when I, I saw him down in, in Florida for a kid his age it's easily the best curveball in the system uh it's it was i think the best curveball in last year's draft uh, and meanwhile he's got a fastball that when he's when he's on is sitting you know 93 90 92 93 94 he did tire a little bit he uh only got two and a thirds innings in, innings in because the game got rained out uh after that amount of time so uh, a shorter start than I'm sure the Red Sox wanted him to to see. Maybe go the full three, maybe even four innings. But uh, you know, pretty good start for him coming out of the gate. And then the third pitch, uh, below average changeup that's 79 to 83. But it's one that he felt like he was getting more comfortable with in spring training. Uh, we actually saw it look pretty good, uh, frankly, when we saw him down in Florida as well. It, it was a pen, potential at least average pick. So uh, pitch, sorry, not pick. But, uh, you know, so for a potential for three average to better pitches, two of them plus, uh, he's a guy who's got a really high ceiling, uh, true potential ace ceiling, I think I would say. So it's uh, it'd be interesting to see how he rehabs, what they how they bring him along. I do think they're going to eventually try and get him back up to Greenville here. Uh, he is technically on a rehab assignment in Lowell, although part of that might just be to keep him from counting against the uh, active roster roster number down there the roster limit so uh maybe two or three more starts get him up to greenville see what he can do and then next year probably starting at greenville with the chance for a quick bump up to salem and hopefully he'll be on his way but he's a very exciting guy especially uh for the fact that i almost forgot a guy who throws from the left side Hmm. so uh, a a lot of potential and groom there yeah absolutely he's uh certainly a guy who i was surprised uh fell to the red Sox last year can you walk me through that because i know that that was a pretty interesting situation uh with with grooms um off the field kind of red flags there last year when when the draft happened as it did were you Mm -hmm. and ian uh and the guys over there surprised that uh he, he did get to the Sox at that point yeah, I mean, it certainly wasn't anything that we'd considered, frankly. I felt kind of bad. You know, every year when we prep for the draft, we uh, usually the person who's in charge of writing up for our news page, the first the first pick, will pre-write five, six, seven guys just to make sure we've got it ready to roll when, when the pick is made. And Groom wasn't one of the ones that we pre-wrote just because it was just – you know, not something we thought was going to happen. Uh, he was a guy who was ranked by at least MLBPipeline.com as the top talent in the draft, and it was consensus top, you know, two or three at the very least, if not the consensus top talent. It's just high school pitchers aren't necessarily a guy that's going to go 1-1. You know, there's a lot right. of risk inherent in a high school pitcher. Um, so as far as the off-field stuff goes, there were a couple of things. Uh, as far as the things that I'm comfortable saying publicly that I've heard uh, he was committed to Vanderbilt uh, and there is some debate publicly as far as whether he decided to decommit from Vanderbilt and commit to a junior college in theory enhancing his uh, his bargaining position as a guy who 
you know, in a position like his, if you're picked in the top three picks, even if you're committed to a place like Vanderbilt, which, you know, players are usually have very strong commitments to, uh, you're, you're going to sign. Mm-hmm. But, you know, by committing to a JUCO, some saw it as kind of a signal that, all right, hey, you know, look, if you don't meet my number, I'm going to go to school. Um, and it's actually been reported that he had an agreement with the Padres to fall to number six where they were going to give him six million. Uh, the Red Sox wound up giving him uh, over three. I think maybe around three and a half million off the top of my head. Wow. So Based, six but, have been over slot as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well over slot. Uh, at the three and a half, the Red Sox gave him – I can bring it up right here, actually. Yeah, they gave him $3.65 million, and that was over slot. Uh, not by a terribly significant amount, but it was over slot for the pick they got him at. So six – you know, the six million that his agent was floating that they were going to give him uh, – the Padres were going to give him at 24 would have been well over slot. But – the thing with the draft is the Red Sox called his bluff. It said, all right, we're picking you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out that he's grown up a huge Red Sox fan. You know, everything in the house was all Red Sox, Red Sox, Red Sox. So the Red Sox took a gamble uh, in a sense and said, hey, you know, you like our organization. You root for our team. Guess what? You're signing with us. Or you're going to school. And it paid off. Uh, you know, they did a great job in scouting him. Um, their, their Northeast scout, Rob English, uh, I guess caught, a, uh, caught all of his bullpens on the summer circuit. Uh, that he played on or something like that the year before. So they had him well scouted as far as some of the other off-field issues. So I didn't finish the Vanderbilt thing, but um, the the other side of that coin, which actually Jim Callis from MLB.com, what he's reported on our podcast is what he heard is that Vanderbilt actually walked away from him. Uh, They said, you know, we're actually not interested in having you come here. Um, And there are some things I've heard about that I'm not really comfortable saying publicly just because, you know, rumors you know, kind of fly and the game of telephone changes things. But, you know, there were some off field things that you heard about that you didn't like definitely chalked up a little bit to some, uh, some immaturity. Uh, you know, he, he's from New Jersey. He went and played down at IMG Academy in uh, in Florida, his junior year, and then transferred back his senior year, which caused some issues and some kerfuffles. So there were a number of off field issues there, both between the commitment his potential signability and, uh, you know, some immaturity issues. But so far from everything we've heard, or I guess not heard, he's been a model citizen that we've heard of no issues with him, which, you know, we, we, we do hear stuff, uh, you know, beyond what we do report. Just we're not trying to be, you know, Red Sox minor leagues TMZ or anything like that. But, um, you know, he's certainly a supremely talented kid, uh, model citizen so far. And it looks like it's a pick that might really wind up paying off in the long run for the Red Sox. Not the kind of talent you typically get uh, at the number 12 pick overall. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to ask you a more philosophical question about um, pitching and how that's kind of evolved uh, throughout the time that you've been covering prospects here. Um, Sure. The Red Sox as an organization, I think it's fair to say, has had a lot of trouble developing starting pitching um, over the last 10-plus years or so. Um, How have you seen the organizational philosophies change between Theo and Charrington and then from Charrington to Dombrowski? Has there been any real change that you've seen in the way that they're handling their young pitchers Mm -hmm. and in the way that they're approaching the draft as well? Because one of the things I've noticed in the last couple of years is that They've gone pretty hard after righty college pitchers, uh, especially in the last couple of drafts. So uh, could you just speak to that a little bit? 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I don't know that I would necessarily. I mean, if you look at the last two drafts, sure, last year their third, fifth, and sixth round picks were all right-handed uh, college pitchers in Sean Anderson from Florida, Mike Shawarin uh, from Maryland, and Steven Nagosik from Oregon, respectively. Uh, and then in this year's draft, uh, you know, they did take a couple of righties out of college. Their fourth round pick is Jake Thompson out of Oregon State, and uh, their sixth round pick was Zach uh, Schellinger from Seton Hall. That said, I think that's that part of it is probably more happenstance than anything. The one kind of theme I did notice this year with their pitcher picks, at least in the first two days of the draft, they picked four right-handed pitchers whose fastballs all graded out as 60 or better on the 2080 scale that uh, MLB Pipeline uh, had these guys graded out at. So maybe a little bit of Dave Dombrowski's preference trickling through, but also might have just been a little bit of that's what was available and those are the guys they liked. Um you know, some of the, the I don't know that I've seen a, a big change in terms of the types of pitchers they go after. You know, you can go back and look through where, you know, yeah. Oh, and actually Tanner Houck was a, a college guy this year, too. I apologize for that uh, at the number 24 pick overall, their first round pick, big uh, omission there. So three college right handed pitchers this year. So good point. But, uh, you know, if you look at last year, their first overall pick was Groom, who was a lefty pitcher out of high school. Uh, this year, yeah, they went Hoke first overall, but then they went with a high school outfielder and a college second baseman in 2015. Their first pick was Ben Attendee, and actually they didn't pick a pitcher until the sixth round in uh, Travis Lakins, who, yes, right-handed college pitcher, but as the fifth guy they picked that year, they picked four position players ahead of him. So, you know, there is a certain amount of best player available, and there are certain things that they'll like in guys, but I don't know that the talent acquisition has changed all that much. Beyond, of course, the the big change has been with the CBA changing in, in 2012, such that there's an actual draft cap, and the Red Sox couldn't just use their financial clout to sign guys late to overslot bonuses back when the slots were just really recommendations. So there's been that change, but that's mandated by the league. As far as development, the one big change that, that we've seen in the past couple of years, and I don't know if this is necessarily a Dombrowski thing, because... One thing that has been constant, frankly, is that even when Dave Dombrowski came in, he didn't bring in a bunch of his guys. A lot of the same guys stayed in place. Ben Crockett is still the farm director. Mike Rickard is still the guy who runs their amateur scouting. Eddie Romero, who does the international scouting, got promoted. Uh, you know, so they, they he recognized that the Red Sox had a really good front office with a lot of talent, even when they lost a few guys in Mike Hazen and uh, Emil Sade and um, – I'm trying to think of who the third guy was that went with them, maybe Jared Banner, uh, over to Arizona. So they lost a few guys there, but it's a lot of the same guys. It's a lot of the same coaching staff, frankly. So that's been pretty constant. The one thing they've changed that I have noticed, though, is that they're moving guys to the bullpen quicker when that's their future role. A lot of times in the past, what they would do is to a fault. I apologize for the ambulance going by in the background, if you can hear that. But uh, it's not for me. Don't worry. (laughs) But... uh, uh, the, they would keep guys in starting roles almost to a fault until they got to Portland or even Pawtucket. And you just have these guys who'd go out and they would start and they'd be really good the first time through the lineup and they just didn't have a third pitch or the mechanics were just such that they had a hard time repeating them over a, you know, 80, 90, 100 pitch start. So, you know, these guys wouldn't be, you, know, you just say, why are they still running this guy out there as a starter? Put him in the bullpen and let him go, and he could be up in the majors for you this year. Um, if you look at some of the guys who look at the group that had success in spring training this year, right, there was the group of four non-roster invitees 
He was stuck around until the very end of spring training, much to the surprise of everyone. And that was the group of uh, Ben Taylor, who made the opening day roster. Um, Austin Maddox, who, you know, as you mentioned, just went back down tonight. Uh, Jamie Callahan, uh, who was promoted from Portland, Pawtucket uh, about a month ago. And um, he's having a great was, year, by the way. Jamie. Callahan. Yeah, Callahan's having a wonderful year. And uh, the fourth one is always oh Chandler Shepard. Mm-hmm. Um, who those guys were all guys who uh, either, you know, in the case of Shepard was allowed to be a reliever right out of the gate. Uh, he, he pitched at Kentucky. He was a college guy. They picked him in the 13th round, signed him to, I believe, a slightly over slot. Uh, uh, no, slightly under slot uh, bonus for the after the 10th round. He got ninety thousand dollars. But they just threw him right in the bullpen and said, hey, go for it. You're a bullpen guy. And uh, he's done a great job flying up the ladder. Uh, if you look at Callahan's actually a great example of the switch in philosophy. Callahan was a second-round pick as a really young high school guy out of South Carolina. They picked him in 2012. He was only 17 at the time he was drafted. And he started in 2012 in the Gulf Coast League, 2013 in Lowell, and 2014 in Greenville. And it, he just wasn't very good, um, it, to be frank. In 2015 in Greenville, they moved to the bullpen and that was a lot quicker than they'd moved guys in the past you know like i said they would just start them with the the rationale being they need to work on the third pitch they need to work on the location they can't get by just pumping the one plus pitch they have say it's a fastball right in the south atlantic league if you have one plus pitch you're going to have success that's all you need if in the south atlantic league if you can command your pitches you're going to have success that's what we're seeing this year with ronio raudes held his own last year without really much stuff and now this year he's up in the carolina league in high a and he's not doing nearly as well because the level of talent is higher but they allowed callahan to move to the bullpen in 2015 he had a little bit of an adjustment period but then he went to the arizona fall league that year last year he had a pretty good year in salem and his kind of coming out party was really the arizona fall league last fall he struck out 12 guys in 12 innings only walked three gave up 11 hits and then this year he's shoving frankly i mean in portland in 13 innings he struck out 20 guys and didn't walk anybody only gave up eight hits uh and in uh Pawtucket so far in 13 innings he struck out 15 guys he's walked eight so the walks are a little higher than you'd like but you know this is a guy who's still only 22 so by moving into the bullpen sooner you put him in a position to have success and he's moving more quickly so we really liked that move we really complained not complained but we critiqued for a while this insistence they had on keeping guys in starting roles that weren't going to be starters down the road. Okay, it's one thing to say if a guy might be a starter or might be a reliever, yeah, start him until he shows you he can't start. I'm with you on that. But they'd have guys who just had no business starting, and they'd start him to a fault until they got all the way up the ladder. And by then, you know, they're old for the league, and it looks like a last-ditch effort as opposed to putting in a guy in a position to succeed. So that's been the biggest change we've seen, and it's really, I think, been a, a pretty good success. The one area of the system where they're actually pretty deep is in guys who profile to be major league middle relievers to set up guys they've got that group of four guys i mentioned and a few others uh who are in the system right now ty buttry has had kind of a coming out party in portland and now up in pawtucket um they've got a group of four five six guys in pawtucket right now who could all really help in the major league bullpen this season so that's one area where they've got a lot of arms and i think that's why yeah and a go six having a good season as well in that similar role right yeah, it's it's kind of funny, Stephen Nagosik. So they drafted him last year out of Oregon, where he was the closer. He was their sixth round pick. Uh, they signed him for about slot, and they kept him in a relief role when they added him to the system with with good reason. It's kind of a, you know, it's a max effort delivery. It's not the kind of delivery where he would really be able to start. He's not the type of guy that would be able to do that. 
But uh, it's interesting this year in Greenville, they're using him in kind of a true relief pitcher role, which they don't really do with guys. You know, I, I tell people all the time, if a guy is a closer in the minors, that's not necessarily a good thing. It usually means the guy is, you know, if you're talking Portland or Pawtucket, it's usually a journeyman who they don't mind running out there, uh, you know, two, three times, uh, you know, in a, in a three or four game span. Uh, because they don't really care about him. With Nagosik, it really does look like they're using him in kind of a truish major league relief role. Uh, he threw on consecutive days recently, which is not something they ever do. Granted, the first game he went out and threw one pitch and got out of the inning, so there probably was an element of wanting him to get his work in. But it's not really something we've seen, and he's having some success there. He's uh, in 35 innings this year. He's got 13 saves. Most of the games he's come in have been save situations, which I think is at least part you know, because Greenville had a, a good first half. They won their division on the final day this past Sunday. Um, he's got, uh, you know, a whip below one in uh, 23 games. The ERA is 255. He struck out 45 guys in 35 innings, 35 and a third, only 11 walks. So the numbers look really good. I think we're probably going to see him moved up to Salem in short order here. Wouldn't surprise me if it was this week coming out of the all-star break. So, um, you know, he's playing and pitching in the all-star game tonight, presumably in the South Atlantic League. So, uh, yeah, he's had a pretty good year. And again, it's another example of letting a guy go into a role where he's positioned to have good success and letting him kind of take off. He, It really wouldn't surprise me if he's in the majors next year, frankly, if he continues to pitch the way he does. You know, not to make a pun here, but um, you wouldn't believe how much relief you've just given uh, Matt Corey that um, perhaps Dave Dombrowski will not use other prospects to trade for relief pitchers now. <laughs> he will. He'll do it. He can't help himself. Uh, well, I, I will forgive you because we are on the podcast with Matt, who's been known to throw a pun or two out there in his time. So uh, <laughs> I forgive you for that one. Yeah, yeah, it has been a little bit strange, though. It, let's get your opinion on this, too. Um, what do you make of Dave Dombrowski seemingly uh, going after these relievers, uh, Tyler Thornburg, Carson Smith, relievers that are performing at an extremely high level at the major league level? Um, but he's seemingly going after them and paying exorbitant prices for him at the peak value. He's almost overpaying for these guys. Is that a sustainable, you know, process? I, th I think the answer is obviously no. But like, why do you think he's doing this? Considering it could be argued that the system is extremely rich with the types of guys that could come up and fill that role organically, and we're seeing the bullpen succeed this year uh, with a lot of guys that did come up kind of through that route. Um, okay, well, few few points there. Um, one, I guess, on the guys they have, um, for one thing, I think it's been kind of a pleasant surprise, the amount of depth they have in the bullpen this year. So I don't think that was something you were necessarily going to want to rely upon. Yes, the Red Sox have had a very good bullpen this year, um, despite not having Smith or Thornburg. But I think that's in part because of the maturation of Matt Barnes, uh, in part because Heath Hembree has been kind of a lot better than you thought he might be. And, and Robbie Scott, man, that's, you know, everyone remembers Daniel Nava. Robbie Scott's just as good of a story almost as Nava was. This is a guy who didn't pitch at Florida State very much in college and has made himself into, a you know, the number one left-handed option in a major league bullpen, uh, which is kind of crazy to me. Uh, you know, the role he was in in Pawtucket last year was this kind of swing man who I just dismissed frankly, because of how they were using him. And I was proven wrong on that. So um, I think part of it was that you didn't 
part of it is you don't want to rely on these guys to become your setup man. I think you want it to be a pleasant surprise if they become your setup man. Otherwise, you just rely on them to be kind of your fifth, sixth, seventh inning guy. Um, so I don't, you know, don't I don't want to make it sound like they've got five future closers in the system. They don't. It's it's future MLB middle relief. Okay. Um, as as far as Dombrowski's trades, a couple points. One, I don't think it's he loves to overpay for relief pitching. I think we've seen at this point that Dave Dombrowski's M.O. in the trade market, especially when you compare him with, say, Ben Charrington. Ben Charrington was out there trying to find good value in trades. Didn't necessarily have to win, didn't necessarily have to, you know, dominate the trade, but it had to be good value or he wasn't going to do it. I think Dave Dombrowski sees it more as a marketplace where... Okay, you know, the first trade he made, for example, that was a big trade. I mean, the first trade was Alejandro Daza for Luis Isla, which no one remembers or cares about at this point. The first big trade was the Craig Kimball trade. And it seemed even clear at that point, and, and it, we were, it was kind of proven true in the later trades he made, where the, go, the price for – he wanted to trade for Craig Kimball. The price for Craig Kimball was X. And he thought about it and said, okay, I will pay X because I think that that is a reasonable amount to trade. Maybe it's a bit of an overpay, but I will pay that for Craig Kimbrell. You know? And if you look at all the trades he's made, it's been this price for Craig Kimbrell, um, this price for uh, Chris Sale, this price for Tyler Thornburg, this price for, I mean, the Carson Smith trade was kind of an outlier because they also got Rowan S. Elias back in the trade, which no one remembers because he hasn't pitched all year. But Although he is I mean, coming back soon, right? Well, that's what we've heard. He actually was on a rehab assignment and they, they pulled him off of it because he, he suffered another injury on the rehab assignment. I, I can't quite remember if it was a I think it was a different injury than the original one. Uh, so I'm kind of writing him off until we see him on the field again. So who know, who knows with with Elias, although they could certainly use more depth. Um, but that said, it's been OK. This is the price for this guy. You know, I maybe haggle on the price a little bit, but I'm going to pay the price for this player as opposed to, like I said, Charrington was more of a value proposition on both sides. My critique of that is that, okay, you're acquiring Craig Kimbrell, you're giving up four players. You're acquiring Chris Sale, you're giving up four players. You're acquiring Tyler Thornburg, you're giving up, as it turns out, four players, which, you know, everyone right now is looking at the Thornburg trade and saying, what a terrible trade it is. Thornburg hasn't pitched this year, while Travis Shaw is the guy that the Red Sox are missing right now which are both independently very true statements, right? Travis Shaw on this team would be a godsend at Absolutely. third base. He's exactly what they need. That said, you didn't know Tyler Thornburg was going to be hurt all season at the time. This is a different injury than he, you know, the elbow injury he's dealt with in the past. So it's unfair to put that on Dombrowski. I think what the fair thing to put on Dombrowski is, okay, you're giving up four guys. Why aren't you going to your Milwaukee guy, right? Your, your Milwaukee pro scout and saying, hey, Who's the guy you saw last year from this system who they won't hold up the trade for, but they'll include in the deal? Okay. Right. And the name I always bring up is Brock Holt mm -hmm. because Brock Holt was the second piece in the Joel Hanrahan trade. And I remember talking to a buddy of mine who's a scout who I went to college with who had had the pirate system. And I said, tell me about this Holt kid. And he said, he's the type of guy that falls out of bed and he gets a couple hits. And he's like, I really like him. I think you're going to really like him, too. And the guy was proven right. So where's that, you know, why aren't you asking for that guy back? Or why aren't you bargaining a little harder and saying, no, I'm not giving you all four of these guys. Pick three. 
you know, because I think he could have given up less for Kimbrel. I think he could have given up less for Thornburg. Um, I think the price for sale was fair, frankly. Yeah. But, uh, you know, like Thornburg, I have no problem giving up Travis Shaw. I have no problem giving up Travis Shaw and Mauricio Dubon. I have a problem giving up Travis Shaw, Mauricio Dubon, Josh Pennington, and Yeeson Coca, and not getting anything else back in addition to Thornburg. I think that's where Dombrowski's primary failing has been trading. And I think that's why the system is as thin as it is right now. And I think that's why you wind up having to trade Anderson Espinoza just to get Drew Pomerantz because you need a major league pitcher for your rotation because otherwise you're starting someone you don't want, like a Henry Owens at the major league level down the stretch last year during a playoff run. So, you know, that's why they've had to overpay in that sort of deal. It would have been great if they still had Manuel Marco or if they still had maybe not Javier Guerra because his season was so bad last year. But that's where it catches up with you when you when you deplete the depth the way they have. That's why look at this year. If they have to make a trade, that's why you're going to have to trade a Blake Swihart. It'd be nice to have a Swihart right now, too. Yeah, Carlos Aswahi would be great. I mean, part of that's, I mean, again, in part, you know, everyone's killing Dombrowski because they don't have a third baseman. Well, they're on plan D right now. Right. You know, because, you know, Sandoval's been terrible and hurt. Brock Holt's been hurt. And Marco Hernandez, who no one really thinks about because he didn't really get too much of a run at the position and he was only okay defensively while he was there. Marco Hernandez was a better hitter in AAA than Travis Shaw was. Not, not many people remember this. His numbers in AAA were better than Shaw's were. So there's no reason to think he couldn't have held down third base for you for the season. Maybe not a long-term solution there, but he would have been great as plan C. You know, they had a bunch of options. It's just, they, they, you know, it all went to hell is what happened to him. So, you know, yeah, a Swahe would have been great to have right now, or a Swahe would have been great to have when you were trying to acquire Drew Pomerantz. You could have packaged him with someone else instead of having to trade Anderson Espinosa. So that's kind of the point. One thing that I've floated to a lot of people that come on our show, and I want to get your take on this as someone who's a little bit closer to the the scouting side of things, do you think that Anderson Espinosa's size or lack thereof factored into the fact that Dave Dombrowski was a little bit more willing to part ways with him? Uh, You know, I don't know that one way or another. One sort of theme we've seen with the guys Dombrowski has traded is that for the most part— they've been at a point where you could see them being at the apex of their value. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not a guy who's going to sit around necessarily and wait. If he thinks a guy might be at the peak of his value, for example, I mentioned Javier Guerra, who at the time the Red Sox traded him had just come off a very good season hitting in Greenville. And, uh, (laughs) excuse me, (coughs) sorry, Um, was a premium defensive shortstop. And you looked at it and said, it's very possible he's never going to hit like this again. And going into that offseason, we identified Manuel Margot and Javier Guerra as the two guys they were most likely to trade if they needed to make a trade in the offseason. And those are the two guys they packaged as the primary guys, in addition to Logan Allen and Carlos Asuaje, for Kimbrel. So the fact that those two guys were traded wasn't a surprise. Um, you know, Margot has been just about what we thought he was, but his value really didn't increase or anything. Even if you look at a Yohan Mancada, when you look at when he came up to the majors last year, I think that was just a, frankly, he was just kind of exposed as not being ready versus weaknesses in his game. But that said, it's quite possible that he was kind of getting exposed. So if you're going to trade him, this past offseason was the time to get that value for him. Um, I think when es- with Espinoza, he's a guy who's outstanding stuff mediocre year last year in low A. 
-hmm. even though he was extremely young for the league. He was the youngest pitcher in the South Atlantic League. But it's not like he went out there and had a, you know, Julio Urias type year, right, where he precocious numbers for his level. It was precocious stuff, um, you know, definitely needed some work in a way that you're fine with. But there's the possibility because the production wasn't there, it wasn't going to pan out. So I think that more than anything, he fit a type of the type of guys that, that Dombrowski has traded, whereas, say, Raphael Devers hasn't really ever been a guy whose value crested, I don't think. He's been a guy who's been slow, steady development, and I think he, he's not the type of player that Dombrowski's been quick to move necessarily. So I think I think that maybe more than the size necessarily, although that said, with the size, he hasn't pitched this year because of injuries, uh, although he's apparently very close to coming back. He may have even come back recently, but um, who knows? Who knows? Maybe the size factored in, but I think it was more kind of the peaking of the value than anything. Okay. Well, I, w- I would point out that, because um, I just looked this up, Logan Allen is actually pretty big, uh, and, and Dombrowski mm-hmm. him away. Uh, Allen is 6'3", 200 pounds, according to baseball reference, and uh, is utterly dominating the Midwest League. So, uh, hooray! Yeah. yeah, he's also repeating low A, I think, if I remember correctly, though. Um, although he might, I think he might have dealt with some injuries last year, so that's why. But uh, he's in Portland. Um, uh, it's a, a ball. Um, yeah, Midwest League is low A, I think. Okay, I there's not. It, baseball reference just says an A, not an A minus. So I, I don't know. Whatever. You're the, the minor league expert. I certainly am not. No, then, I will no, double check. Sure. I, I get confused on the, the the leagues that the Red Sox aren't in. Yeah, he he pitched in uh, uh, in Fort Wayne last year as well uh, in in full season low A. Uh, he, he had 15 pitched in 15 games, 11 of them starts. He only got 54 innings, so he's already at 62 this year. So, um, yeah, he's pitching great this year. Wouldn't surprise me to move up. But that said, you know, 24 walks and 62 innings is a little bit higher than you'd like to see him at. So, again, he also might have been a guy that they traded before. Maybe some warts got exposed. So, um, I think it was actually the first drafty traded under the new new rules for the draft, allowing you to trade guys sooner. Like the Trey Turner rule, I oh, guess you could call it. Yeah. Um, because it used to be that you couldn't trade a guy until like a year after he got drafted, but then it led to things like when Trey Turner was the player to be named later in a deal that was made in the offseason, and everybody knew, right. including him. So he's playing out the stretch in a system that he's not going to be a part of. So everyone just kind of looked at that system and says, hmm, we should change this. And they did, to their credit. So I think he was the first guy traded under the new rules. Do you ever see a scenario where Major League Baseball allows for basketball and football-esque trades of draft picks? They should. I don't know if they will or not. It's crazy that they don't. Um, I, I don't understand the reason for it, frankly. I think, oh, I mean, they have reasons. I think they're not very good. But um, I, I, they certainly could in the future. I just think it's going to be one of those things where, you know, one side or the other is going to want some kind of concession in, in exchange for that. So who knows? Um, but they definitely should. I agree with you on that. If that's kinda, the point you're making. I'm kind of glad that they, that they don't. I feel like the Red Sox would never have a first-round pick. And I, I actually <laughs> kind of like watching and following the, the draft. I I have to say, Chris, I'm super psyched for uh, you and Ian discussing the the Red Sox latest draft haul. And um, I, I don't want to be I don't want to be robbed of that any more than uh, it seems like I will be based on the Red Sox you know, where they're going to be picking, hopefully, in the in the later part of the first round going forward. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily, if anything, you know, I could see a team like the Red Sox trading up, right? I mean, they're a team that's not going to mind 
paying the money to guys. And, and you know, they, they do allow trading, actually, I should mention, of the competitive balance picks. So maybe we're heading in that direction, right, where they're allowing the, uh, however, the, I think the calculus is the, the 10 smallest markets and the 10 lowest revenue teams or whatever um, get competitive balance picks. Uh, so they, those picks are allowed to be traded, which makes some sense. But um, I, I don't think the Red Sox would necessarily trade their their picks away. So we'll, um, you know, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what they did under such a system, frankly, because they're a team that with the financial clout they have might want to acquire picks. Um, getting to the draft here, how do you think that they did overall in this most recent draft here? I know that you and Ian, when I've listened to your podcast, have talked about and you mentioned it again on the show tonight, um, kind of how drastic that drop-off is between the top three guys and then four through, I don't know, 20, 40, however far you want to go, uh, mm-hmm. where there's just kind of a logjam of guys who, you know, might be something, might not be something. Um, how good of a job did the Red Sox do in this most recent draft kind of addressing some of the weaknesses that the system has? Uh, what are some of the strengths and weaknesses of the system? And, and how do the new guys that they signed uh, fit into uh, the rankings here as you guys look towards uh, July's rankings? Sure. Well, um, actually, if I can drop a plug, our uh, draft review podcast is uh, it's in the can. Uh, the production just needs to be done. So that's going to come out this week at, at some point, depending on when I've got time to go in and edit a couple of things on that. So uh, if, if, if those listening on however you're listening to this fine uh, podcast, if you've got time when you're done with it, feel free to search for Sox Prospects or you can go to news.soxprospects.com and uh, find our latest podcast and we'll have all the links there. But that said, um, we're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, et cetera. Anyway, uh, I think they did a really good job for where they were, uh, frankly. Uh, you know, we were talking to our guest last night, Jim Callis. He, he also felt the same about where they were if they if you had told them at the beginning of the year they would wind up with who they wound up with they would have taken that in a heartbeat um it's really a draft that's kind of top heavy last year when they drafted jay groom they i think what they did is they kind of hedged in the picks after the 10th round where they drafted a bunch of kind of tough signability guys where say something happened where groom wasn't going to sign they could go ahead and sign one or two of them to kind of make up the deficit because groom was going to take so much money that it was basically going to turn into almost a one player draft potentially depending on what they needed to sign him uh this year you know drafting at number 24 you're not going to wind up with a system changing player that's just the way it goes uh tanner hauck was the first first pick for them at number 24 right-handed pitcher out of missouri uh, you know, he was a guy who was rated right around there, so he was kind of a boring sort of, yeah, that pick makes sense type of guy. Um, some scouts see him and they see a reliever. Some scouts see him and they see a starter. Uh, he's a guy that, you know, at least Mike Rickard on the conference call after the dra- first night of the draft was excited about. He's a guy who's performed in the Southeastern Conference. Like I said, the SEC is one of the premier college baseball conferences. So he had a, a good career in the SEC for Missouri, which I always forget Missouri's in the SEC now, but they are. Um, you know, fine pick there. He's a guy who's played for Team USA, which is one of kind of the prototypes that the Red Sox always go after. It seems like guys who play on the Cape or guys who play for Team USA always abound in their drafts because they like scouting those two outlets. Um, so he's pretty good. Uh, he'll be in the conversation, I think, for number four. Uh, right now, for me, the number four prospect in the system will be Michael Chavis, who, as I mentioned, you know, third baseman who's in Salem, 
has been tearing the cover off the ball this year, has been kind of a revelation. Former first-round pick in his own right uh, for the Red Sox in the uh, 2014 draft. Yeah, because 2015 was Ben Benintendi. Uh, yeah, he was the number 26 overall pick as a Georgia high schooler for the Red Sox. Uh, Chavis would be number, my number four right now. Hauk might be in the conversation for me at five or six. I haven't really thought about it too hard because we don't rank them until they sign. So luckily I get to kick that decision down the road, but Hauk's right in there. Uh, he'll go to Lowell when he signs. And then next year he'll probably start in Greenville with the chance to move up to Salem quickly. Like Sean Anderson and Mike Shawaran did this year as two 2016 college pitching draftees. Um, the kind of rest of the primary draft hall was uh, Cole Brannon, a high school outfielder out of Georgia in the second round. Uh, again, ranked right around there. So so pretty good pick for the Red Sox there. Kind of a speedy guy. Question about how much power he'll have, but he has some field to hit uh, and should stay in center field. Their third round pick was a second baseman out of UNC Charlotte uh, named Brett Netzer. Uh, a guy who's uh, hit first, second baseman. Uh, maybe a little bit of a guy who might sign for a little bit below slot uh, for that pick. It's 532000 but... That said, I feel like guys in that range who I always think are going to sign for below slot don't. So don't take my, my word for that. Uh, in the fourth round, they took a guy I mentioned, Jake Thompson, right-hander out of Oregon State, first-team All-American this year. Really had kind of an improving uh, improvement this year as a junior for Oregon State, who was the number one team in the country. I think they only lost like four games all year. They're playing in the College World Series right now. Uh, caught his start in the first game of the College World Series on Saturday, or at least the start of it, and Maybe a little bit of nerves, but there's, you know, a little bit of command could be a little bit better, but, uh, you know, so pretty good arsenal for him right there. Again, a guy who, when the College World Series ends, probably goes to Lowell, starts next year in Greenville. Um, and then the fifth rounder is a right-hander out of Texas by the name of Alex Scherf. He's a guy who is really kind of a second-round talent and fell. Uh, there's some off-field questions with him. Uh, a type of guy who actually, based on what I've heard, uh, people think signing – with a pro team would be good for him. And fr- actually, Scherf and Brannon, uh, I saw, I'm, I'm not quite sure if this is completely accurate, but I'm pr- I think one of them posted on one of their social media accounts a picture of the two of them in Fort Myers. Hmm. So it looks like they're both going to sign. And actually, Scherf's local newspaper said that he's going to sign for 700K. Slot for his position is a tick below 300K. So to get wow. him for 700, which is slot for about beginning of the third round, would be a real coup for the Red Sox. Uh, I was... We, we thought he might take a little bit more like 900K, which, yeah, only 200K for the Red Sox doesn't mean a whole lot. But in the scope of your draft cap, actually is a significant, significant amount of money. Maybe you could take that and put it towards someone who you drafted after the 10th round and sign someone who you wouldn't have otherwise been able to sign. So um, if they got him for 700K, really good scouting job by the Red Sox, knowing what he would sign for and going ahead and popping him there. Those are kind of the main guys. The, the sixth rounder, I, I, just because I mentioned it before, Zach Schellinger. Uh, reliever out of Seton Hall, guy who probably stays in a relief role in the pros, not unlike um, Nagosek, who we were just talking about. I could see him maybe following a kind of similar path to Nagosek, maybe not quite uh, as well regarded, but a guy who had kind of a down year this year, dealt with a little bit of an injury bug uh, himself. So could be a good value get there if, if he's able to get healthy and be a little bit better. He only had 13 innings for Seton Hall this year. So, um, you know, maybe if he's able to get over the injury and come back and, and you know, get back to himself, could be a good value pick in the sixth round there. Those are the primary guys for them. Uh, you know, personally, like I said, Hauk for me, fit, he's certainly a top 10 prospect in the system. I have no questions about that. It probably fits somewhere in the five to eight range. Um, Scherf, Brandon, and Thompson are really the guys you're looking at ranking next. 
they're probably all at least top 30. They're certainly all top 30 prospects. Brandon and Scherfer are at least top 20 prospects, I would say. You know, it's kind of tough to say where you'd put them. We tend to be kind of conservative with the draftees. Part of the reason for that is some of the reports you hear on guys are a little bit inflated. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, Cole Brandon reportedly ran a 6-1-8, 60-yard dash uh, at a perfect game event. um, It's like a college sprinter. That, 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 so an 80 on the 2080 scale is a 6.3. Um, <laughs> I'm very skeptical about the 6.18 number for him. Um, the scouting that I've read on Brandon has ranged from above average run to double plus run. Uh, so maybe he's a double plus runner. That's a double plus 60 is a 6.5. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and trust all of the outlets scouting than the one time from the perfect game rankings. That said, um, you know, Scherf might be a top 10 guy. Brandon, maybe a top 15 type guy. Again, it's tough to say without knowing what the rankings are going to be. Looking at the rankings we have right now, there's going to be some changes when we make our uh, July 1st update. Like I said, I'm going to be moving Michael Chavis up in my rankings to number four. Um, Brian Mata, who's a guy who we haven't really talked about, uh, made his debut in Green- with Greenville recently. He's 18 years old. He's younger than Espinosa or Raudes was last year in Greenville. He's the youngest player in the South Atlantic League. And he's excelling so far and only you know, three starts, I think, in a way that neither Rowdace nor Espinosa did last year. Uh, he's moving into my top 10. I might put him as high as five in my personal rankings. Actually, he's made four starts. Sorry. Uh, yeah, four starts, 21 innings, 20 strikeouts to five walks and 15 hits uh, for a guy who's 18. Which I'm is so kind of happy fun. to hear you say that because he's one of the few guys that I wanted to ask you about later. And I guess we can kind of talk about him right now, but um, Brian Mata, from 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 seeing what he's doing, it's really really hard not to get super excited about him. I mean, could he sure. potentially fill that gap between those top three guys and be like right there, get get himself into that tier by the end of this year? If he continues pitching the way he is now, sure. Yeah, yeah, I would go ahead and do that. Uh, Mata doesn't have Anderson Espinosa's stuff. Right. I mean, Anderson Espinosa drew Pedro comparisons, mm-hmm. right? Mata's not drawing Pedro, Pedro comparisons by any stretch. He's got kind of precocious pitchability for his age, um, but he's not Ronio Raudes, who, in at least my opinion, and I think Ian might kind of say this too, maybe not in the same words, I think Ronio Raudes is a lot of smoke and mirrors. Mm-hmm. He's a guy who has very good control, if not necessarily command, and kind of a funky delivery. And like I said, that's enough to get by in the South Atlantic League. He's got this really, you know, if, if, if any of your listeners haven't seen Ronio Raudes, I think we've got video of him on the Sox Prospects YouTube page. So, you know, if you go to YouTube and search for us, we're on there. Um, it's a really funky windup. He, like, kind of crouches down and swings his arms around to bring him up over his head and then goes into his delivery and turns his back to the plate. It's kind of really a disconcerting sort of windup. Um, and that's the kind of thing that's going to throw South Atlantic League hitters off. And that's why I think in the in the Carolina League this year in high A, he's not having nearly as much success because he's getting exposed. He throws high 80s, you know, tops out at 90-91, and that's not enough. It's not like he's got pinpoint control of the pitch. Um, Mata somewhere in between with the stuff. Uh, you know, Mata looking at our, our, our scouting report of him is 89-92, to topping out at 93 uh, it, that pitch could be a potential plus offering as he grows into the pitch, maybe pick, picks up another tick or two as he fills out. Uh, um, curveball, 11 to 5 break, 60, 76 to 77 miles per hour. 
and a change up at 82, 83 that's inconsistent right now, but he's shown flashes. So potentially with three pitches, uh, again, development needed with all three, but at his young age, the potential to have three plus, not sorry, three plus pitches, three at least average or better pitches um, with the ability to uh, control them. Uh, you know, not a lot of walks this year, not a lot of walks last year in the Dominican Summer League. And, you know, he knows how to pitch a little bit, too. You know, as a guy who could fill out a little bit, a lot's got to happen, but there's there's some tools there for him to be a really nice pitcher, kind of a middle of a rotation guy. Yeah, by the end of the year, easily could be the number four guy in the system. No question. I, I, I might almost have him there right now. So, uh, you know, he's, he's a guy that I kind of really like, especially because, you know, Ian, I got to give Ian credit, or Ian Kundal, our director of scouting. He was on him really early. He was on him from the first time he saw him at the Fall Instructional League last year. He said, hey, this guy Mata is someone we really ought to push in our rankings. And Mike Andrews, the editor-in-chief of the site, and I kind of pushed back a little bit on him. But, uh, you know, once we all saw him in spring training, we just said, yeah, okay, you know what? let's you're right in let's roll with it let's shoot him into the moon and we put him in our top 20 i think we we're one of the first outlets to have him that high and i think it's kind of bearing out i like what we're seeing from him so far at an age age advanced level and i'm looking forward to seeing how he develops it's it's a long way to go but it's exciting well it's a good segue i guess to um the the j2 signings here um you know they're coming up in a, a little bit less than two weeks now um, who are some of the players that the Red Sox are going to be targeting as international signees? And now that I believe they're finally free from sanctions this year, so <laughs> yes. they can uh, they can yes. get out of jail a little bit there and, and spend some money. So who are some of the guys they're going to be looking at? Well, you know, it's funny. The, the Dominican Summer League team this year, this is probably for a team that we often tell people to pump the brakes on and not to look at the numbers on. This is the least I've cared about a Red Sox DSL team probably ever just because there's no one new. It's all guys repeating the Dominican Summer League, which is never a good thing, right? Yeah. Um, the the Red Sox J2 class right now looks like it's going to be headlined, and this is, I, I have to give credit where it's due, Ben Badler from Baseball America and uh, MLB Pipeline as well um, have done reporting on this. This is not our original reporting. We're, we're, we kind of aggregate as far as this goes, so I don't want to make it sound like I have any inside info. But kind of headlined by three guys. The primary guy that it's headlined by is a catcher by the name of Daniel Flores out of uh, Venezuela. Uh, the Red Sox have really done a good job of scouting Venezuela in past years. Eddie, since Eddie Romero took over uh, the international scouting department, they've really done a good job of developing relationships down in Venezuela and farming that area for, uh, for talent. Um, that's where they got Anderson Espinosa. That's where they got the Basabe twins. They've, they've really done a good job of hitting Venezuela pretty hard yep, for Brian talent. Mata too. Uh, Brian Mata too. Exactly. Thank you. Yes. And Mata wasn't even necessarily a high bonus guy either. That was, you know, just them recognizing a guy young and, and not having to pay him a huge bonus, but uh, Flores, uh, MLB Pipeline at least has the number two prospect in this class. He's a catcher, and uh, some reports the, the, there are raves about his defense at catcher. Um, to quote the MLB Pipeline report, best defensive catcher ever at his age, wow. considered by some scouts, which is, you know, as we were talking a little bit before the podcast, uh, before we started to hit the record button, you know, I always take pre-draft and pre-J2 signing reports with an enormous grain of salt, right? Because you don't know until you get them on a field with other professionals, what they're really going to look like. But, um, you know, outstanding defensive catcher based on what we've heard, uh, based on the reports, you know, no slouch at the plate either. Um, you know, the chance to hit for po average with potential plus power even. 
uh, has shown good raw power and a mature approach. He's a guy who, you know, with that kind of profile, it wouldn't surprise me if they skipped him straight to the U.S. and had him start in the uh, Gulf Coast League next year, like they more or less did with Rafael Devers. Devers, they basically started in the, in the Dominican Summer League to get at bats and then, you know, said, hey, you want to play in the U.S., earn it, and he went, he earned it, and they called him up once the, the Gulf Coast League started. But uh, Flores is a guy who, you know, is a really exciting player that they could add to the system. Wouldn't surprise me if he's a top 10 guy as soon as they sign him, which for a international signee is not very common, especially in our rankings. We tend to really kind of pump the brakes on those guys. In part, that speaks to the lack of depth in the system, but it also speaks to the reports on him. So mm-hmm. um, that's interesting. Um, the other two guys that they're connected to that are kind of the other two top guys, um, Danny Diaz, who's a shortstop out of Venezuela, uh, has a really good chance to hit with a very good arm. Um, and Anthony Flores, who's also a shortstop. Um, you know, the, the question on his scouting report on MLB.com is, could he be the next Alcides Escobar? Some evaluators sure think so. Um, so a couple of shortstops. But that said, you know, frankly, most of the guys who are your highlight signings in the international realm are either going to be shortstops, center fielders, or catchers. Mm-hmm. Because the guys who are the best there stay up the middle until the professional team moves them. Because, you know, they're 16. It's kind of like I said with uh, with Michael Chavis. He was a high school shortstop because the best player on the high school team plays shortstop, right? That, that's right. where they play. He was never going to play shortstop in the pros. Will Middlebrooks, shortstop in high school, was probably never going to play shortstop in the pros. So, you know, again, these guys, they'll, they'll play shortstop until they have to move off the position. And that happens sometimes. They either move to third, move to second, um, move to the outfield. It's something that happens. Or, you know, hey, sometimes like a Xander Bogarts, they stick. So it's, it's a pretty good class. It looks like the Red Sox are kind of hitting that area hard after uh, not having been able to sign anyone internationally last year and if anything it looks like it might have given them a head start frankly uh, on this year so it's a, it's a good class coming in that we're we're excited to get in the system and get some some new international guys to talk about now how does this work is it is it a financial cap as to how much money you can spend on the international market or is it an actual player cap like how many guys can you actually go out and select for those of our listeners who who don't know exactly how this works yeah so with the new cba the way it's been described is effectively a hard cap um the teams have different caps based on, I believe it's, the, it's their revenue or something to that effect. So the Red Sox, I believe they have a cap of $4.75 million. Um, a third of the teams have 4.75, a third of the teams have 5.25 million, and a third of the teams have 5.75 million, I think. Um, no limit on players, and there's a point at which players don't count towards the cap um, below which, if you sign them. Previously, I think it was 300k, but now they've changed it, and I could probably uh, Google it if if I had a second. Um, I think I may have heard typing. I don't know if that was Matt, but uh, okay, new CBA. Well, I'll look it up while I'm while I'm trying to talk through this here. But um, they did make significant changes, and the 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 long and short of it is it is effectively a hard cap now. Okay. Uh, what that's going to do is drive the highest bonuses down. Um, the one player who a lot of people have pointed to as this affecting this affects the most is uh, Otani, the pitcher in Japan. Right, yeah. Uh, had he come over under the old CBA, he probably would have gotten the Yohan Moncada contract, right, where a team's just going to say, screw it, we'll blow our international cap for this one guy because, you know, it's a potential game changer of a talent just like the red sox are more than happy to blow their international cap that year for moncada even though 
few people remember this, they already had gone past their international cap that year to sign Anderson, Anderson Espinoza and, and Christopher Acosta. So, um, you know, but apparently he wants to come over, and as a result, he's going to get way less than he would have otherwise. He's probably only going to get, you know, $4 million or so, um, depending on what a team can afford to pay him. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a lot of changes. I'm interested to see how this plays out, what it does to kind of the top-end bonuses, who some of the top-end bonuses would blow by themselves the current draft caps for some teams. So I think you can knock, gone are the days of international guys getting five, six, seven million um, based on the new CBA rules. Well, at least that means no more uh, Rusni Castillos, right? Uh, I guess, I th- although I think Castillo, there, once you're uh, above a certain age, you don't count uh, okay. uh, for the international caps anymore. So Castillo may have been uh, there a- anyways. That said with Castillo, I mean, frankly, his contract, it's not on the CBT numbers right now. So that's just, it's just money, which I guess is easy for us to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's kind of funny because it's probably what's keeping him in the minors right now because no team's going to want to touch that contract. Uh, but that said, maybe next year he's your fourth outfielder because with two years left with, uh, you know, getting the, the Chris Young money off the books and getting, you know, like the Mitch Moreland money off the books. If you replace him with the Sam Travis at the league minimum, uh, you might be able to afford having an $11 million fourth outfielder. But, um, yeah, that's a weird situation. That said, yeah, you're going to get that with some guys. But I think kind of the, the Cuban bubble has burst a little bit. Um, I think teams have kind of come around on, you know, oh, well, the Joneses have a Cuban. I need to get my Cuban mm-hmm. uh, signee. So I think, you know, that was a big mistake for the Red Sox. They're lucky that it's only kind of costing them money at this point. But it could have been a lot more of a problem if, if they hadn't been able to put him through outright, waiver, well, outright waivers. Well, um, you know, Chris, I, I could sit here and talk to you all night about prospects because I, I love this stuff so much. But in the interest of getting you out of here, we'll start moving towards wrapping this up. Um, there are a few more guys that I want to ask you about selfishly because I'm super interested in prospect stuff. And then we have one listener question if you've got some time. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, so a, a few guys who I like a little bit more than I think um, – you know, consensus, I guess, in the Red Sox system are Jalen Beeks, uh, Bobby Dahlbeck, and Danny Mars. I know that Jalen Beeks has just recently moved up to AAA. Um, so could you talk about kind of what his uh, future role is with the team, what his impact is, and do you think that he could be a guy that could continue to climb in your ranks? I believe right now he's, what is he, 14th, just outside your top 10 there? Yeah, right now we've got Beeks at 15. 15 um I did kind of, uh, you know, during a, a break, uh, during lunch today, kind of started kind of doing a rough version of my July 1 rankings, and now I've got him moving up uh, a little bit, you know, just based on what he's done this year. The biggest thing with Beeks this year is he's cleaned up his mechanics. Uh, he used to have really funky mechanics, um, such that we actually projected him for a middle relief role um, due to the funk in his delivery. But, uh, you know, he's cleaned them up a lot this year. Uh, we actually had a really good – Ian did a great job um, in one of his scouting scratches on our news page, news.soxprospects.com. Um, you know, ding, ring the bell. But um, he did a great job. He had a couple of side-by-side uh, gifts of his mechanics. And you just there was a lot more – extraneous motion a little more movement with the arm and his old delivery he's really cleaned that up a lot this year and you know he went to to portland this year in a return trip and he absolutely threw great in 49 and a third struck out 58 guys uh walked 22 a little higher than you'd like but you know only allowed 35 hits so if you're not getting up the hits the walks are a little easier to take but you know when you're striking out more than 10 per nine ten and a half per nine you're going to deal with that 
And at Pawtucket, he's been pretty good too, man. In, in three starts, he, he's had three pretty good starts there. So he's in the picture of pitching himself into being a depth option as a starter at the major league level, as a left-hander, even better. Um, so he's a guy that certainly is going to be a major leaguer. Uh, that's for certain. That's another guy that, you know, Ian kind of identified early as a guy who, you know, can go out there and throw, you know, low 90s, topping out at 95 with some life. So, um, you know, he's a really interesting guy as a, as a left-hander who, yeah, has really improved his status this year to the fact where he, he may be an up-and-down guy as a starter, uh, you know, that, that could give you some innings in that role. And maybe down the line, whether he's a starter or, or a useful lefty out of the bullpen, you know, he, he'll, be, he'll be an interesting, interesting guy there. Um, I'm trying to think who else, uh, who else did you ask about? Let's, uh, the, the other guy, uh, is all the way down at 29 for you guys. It's Danny Mars. And when you talked about Brock Holt and your buddy saying that, you know, Brock Holt is the type of guy that can wake up and get a couple of hits. Um, that's actually been the way that I've felt about Danny Mars watching him through, uh, the different levels in the system. And I know he doesn't have a, a particular standout tool, but is this the type mm-hmm. of the guy that hits well enough that he could make it as a major league depth option? Um, maybe, you know, he's had kind of a breakout this year in Portland. He's hitting 314 right now. The knock on him has been, been in part that there's just not a lot of power there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's only got five career home runs since being, since his debut in 2014. Uh, so, you know, not a ton of power there. He's never, uh, slugged above 429. And that was with, with Lowell in 2014, uh, you know, this year in Portland, he's slugging 411. So the, the ISO is below 100. So not a ton of pop there, though. There is a little bit of doubles pop, maybe athletic guy uh, can can play all three positions. I think, frankly, he, he profiles a little bit more as a fourth outfielder at the majors. Um, not enough power or arm strength to stick in a corner. And, and I don't know if he really is a guy you want to stick in center, although he's playing a lot of center field right now for Portland with Yosef Monhe on the DL. So. You know, like I said, I think I think he's a guy who maybe is a fourth outfielder down the road. Athletic can fill a role um, if he pans out the way you would like him to. Um, you know, he's certainly a guy that they they like. They sent him to the Arizona Fall League this past year, where you, he certainly was a little overmatched. He, you know, he hit 259, but with pretty much no power, not a lot of walks, struck out 13 times in 17 games. Um, sorry about that, but uh, the cat in the background, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, he's he's an interesting guy. He's a guy who's climbing our rankings a little bit uh, with the season he's having, and and maybe, you know, kind of ho- trying to kind of stick out a little bit above a pack of, of outfielders the Red Sox have right now. It's kind of him, Tate Matheny, Tyler Hill, and Nuri Tavares, and Lorenzo Cedrola are this group of outfielders they have uh, across, you know, all four levels of the system who all maybe profile best in, in a bench role, uh, and you'd like to see them maybe kind of break out and show that they could be something a little more than that, but. Um, you know, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see how Mars finishes the season after his first half breakout, at least, uh, that's, that's for sure. I'll be keeping an eye on him. Maybe if he can develop a little bit of pop. Um, last guy here, we'll, we'll roll this into the listener question. We got a question from, uh, John Aubin who who says, uh, who will be playing third for the Red Sox in 2019 out of Devers, Dahlbeck and Chavis? Um, and, uh, my, my ask was about, uh, Dahlbeck. So, um. That's a good segue. Sure. Well, to answer the the listener question first, um, Raphael Devers, no question. Yeah. Uh, he's he's on a level of his own. He's he's by far the best prospect in the system. In part, a comment on the system's depth, but that's not a knock on him. I mean, he was a guy who 
we were extremely high on. Even when, you know, he looked kind of buried for a while because he was behind Moncada and Benintendi, but that's because those two guys were one and two in baseball. You know, so being behind those two guys was not a big deal. Um, but when you look at it in a team list, it's like, oh, he's only the number three guy. Um, Devers ideally is going to be the third baseman for this team for a long time. And you kind of deal with the problems down the line. Uh, Chavis, just to hit on him really quickly, there's questions about him staying at third base still. Uh, he's got a lot of errors this season. I haven't seen where, where he's at. That said, he's been dealing with an elbow injury. But he does have a lot of work to do at third base to stick at that position. He might have to move to maybe left field or, or right field down the line. Uh, I've got some questions about where Chavis stays long term. Uh, Dahlbeck is interesting. You know, I was really down on Dahlbeck because this season, you know, he, he was amazing last year in Lowell. He was kind of a revelation where – you know, at Arizona, there were some questions. There was a lot of swing and miss, right? And he was a guy that was playing two ways for them. Speaking of two-way guys, like I was mentioning with Brian Johnson earlier in the podcast, um, at Arizona, frankly, last year in the College World Series, he was a revelation on the mound. He pitched them to the College World Series, frankly. But, uh, you know, he was drafted as a third baseman. As it turns out, he hated pitching. He absolutely hated it. Didn't yeah. like it. He did it because it, it helped the team win. But he was very happy to stop pitching. Um, so when he got to Lowell and he could hit every day, you know, in 34 games, he hit 386, 436, 74, um, you know, 33 strikeouts in 34 games. But you'll take that with a 674 slugging percentage, right? Yeah, it was absurd. Um, yeah, he, he had basically the best statistical season in Lowell that we've probably seen since the site started in 2003, right? Um, that said, as a college guy out of the Pac-10, that's kind of what you're looking for. And frankly, I think he would have gotten called up to Greenville potentially if it weren't for the fact that Greenville wasn't making the playoffs and Lowell was. So the potential for him to get more at bats was in Lowell. Um, this year to Greenville, he went there and uh, struck out in 35.8% of his plate appearances, which is awful. Um, 44 strikeouts in 123 plate appearances. Um, you know, in a per game basis, that's 44 K's in 29 games. Um, all of a sudden he goes on the DL and uh, actually I've got the date right here. He went on the DL on May 15th with what was called at the time hand and wrist soreness. But as it turned out, he had a broken handmade bone and underwent surgery for it in late May. He's going to be out until at least July. Alex Spear was the one who reported that of the Boston Globe. So now that you know about the injury, you say, huh? All right, well, maybe in part that was responsible for the strikeouts, right? If, if you're trying to hit with a broken hammock in your hand, yeah, yeah that's going to hurt a lot, right? So, you know, if the injury is responsible in part for the amount of strikeouts, I'm a lot higher on him than I would be if the injury was not responsible for all the strikeouts. We knew there would be some swing and miss. Even last year in Lowell when he was having all that success, he was striking out at a 23% rate using plate appearances. That's not low. It's acceptable. You can take it, especially in today's game when you understand, you know, an out's and out, right? Um, but striking out at a 36% clip in low A, I was ready to, you know, I, I was moving him down my rankings with, with the quickness. Um, you know, he fell from being the easy uh, number five guy in the system when, when the system still included Andrew Benintendi on top of the big three of Devers, Groom, and Travis. We had Dahlbeck right behind those guys, and it really wasn't too much of a question to the point where, you know, I've been advocating for us to drop him. Uh, we, he's at eight right now. Uh, I might move him up a little bit this month in my rankings based on the fact that, oh, it turns out he's hurt. Okay. Right. It's a big difference. That's, that's a huge difference. You know, I thought, hand, frankly, I'll admit that at first I thought hand slash wrist soreness 
was kind of the uh, Bobby Dahlbeck version of uh, uh, um, <laughs> ear infection. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I was skeptical, but as it turns out, yeah. Okay. It turns out he was really hurt. So, um, you know, I thought they were kind of working with him, but it turns out he needed surgery. We'll see how he comes back from that and how he Trump comes back next year. Um, he's a guy who's got a lot of potential at the plate if he works it out, if he hits like he did in Lowell, that's for sure. But again, there's always going to be swing and miss. It's just he's got to manage that, be able to recognize pitches, be able to put together good plate appearances and not be striking out in more than a third of the times he comes up to the plate in order for him to be uh, effective, even with, you know, what's definitely plus raw power. But even in spring training, I have to admit, I wasn't too taken aback by his at-bats. The pop was there. He crushed the ball, but then he would strike out two times in the same game where he hit a massive home run. So, um, you know, it's going to be a little bit of management of the strikeouts, a little bit of making sure he's putting bat to ball in order to tap into that power because, you know, you can't hit a home run on a pitcher swing and miss at. Right. Yeah, he's going to be an interesting guy to watch. I don't think we'll really get a too, true litmus test on him until maybe the end of the year, maybe not even till next year uh, when he's fully healthy. So he's going to be someone yeah. to watch for sure. And look at what Chavis did. I mean, Chavis missed about a month last year with a with a um, with an injury. It was I'm trying to keep the two of them straight. He had two injuries. He missed a significant amount of time last year with one injury, and then it turned out he he fractured a finger about a week after he came back taking ground balls and didn't tell anybody. And he was just terrible after he came back from this injury. And then when he got promoted to Salem as kind of a, I think it kind of a sink or swim move, just like, look, you've been in Greenville for two full seasons. We don't know what to do with you. Let's see what you do in Salem. He finally told them, Hey, I think my fingers hurt and turned out he had a broken finger. So, you know, and then he comes in this year and look what he's doing now. That he's healthy. Um, you know, when he had a lot of success last year in the first month and then he got hurt and he didn't, wasn't the same. So, you know, sometimes you lose a year due to injury. We always say player development is not a linear process for most guys. And for a guy like Dahlbeck, maybe 2017 turns out to be a bump in the road. And you hope it is. You know, we, we hope that all these guys succeed. You know, we hear from guys like, oh, why are you poo-pooing this guy that I love or anything? I was like, well, no, we want him to succeed. But I'm not going to, you know, tell you a guy's going to be the next, you know, second coming of, you know, Mike Schmidt or something if I don't think he's going to be that. Um, I don't know why I just pulled Mike Schmidt out, by the way. Because he's awesome. Third baseman, and he's awesome. I guess and he has a great mustache. But uh, <laughs> Although, it wasn't he the one? You know, Maybe I shouldn't have used him, given the Oduba Herrera stuff recently. But um, at any rate, you know, Dahlbeck's got potential to be a really good player, and maybe we just have to treat 2017 as an outlier and come into next year with a fresh set of eyes and see what he does after uh, you know, a full off season. So who knows? Who knows what, what we'll get out of Dahlbeck, but you know, he's certainly a top 10 guy in the system still, despite uh, the year he's having and the injury issues. So we'll see what happens when he comes back. All right. Well, uh, Chris, you are now the uh, general manager of the Kansas City Royals, and oh boy. Um, I am going to give you my trade package for Mike Moustakis. Tell me if this works for you. Uh, Michael okay. Chavis, uh, Schwarin, and Nagosik. You know, that that's an interesting package. We haven't talked about Shawaran. Shawaran's a guy who, while he was with Greenville the first, you know, couple months of the season, absolutely shoved in 10 starts, 53 and a third innings. He struck out 78 guys. And just kind of like, whoa, okay, you know, made you stand up and take notice. But since the promotion to Salem in three starts, he's kind of tailed off a little bit, had a great first start. His last two starts, he's kind of gotten roughed up. Um, 
so I think he's kind of settled back into where what we thought he was. If I can go Denny Green on you for a minute here. So again, so it was it was Chavis, Dahlbeck, and Nagosik. Uh, Chavis, Schwarin, and Nagosik. Oh, I mean Schwarin. Sorry, yeah. that's what I meant. I don't know why I said Dahlbeck. Um, I don't know if if Chavis is still hitting like this at the deadline, especially after a promotion to Portland. Maybe you think about it, but the, the the one problem I have with Chavis is if he has to move to left field, right. it's going to put a lot more pressure on the bat. He's going to have to hit like this uh, to have a, spa- a spot in a lineup. Um, what's Moustakis doing this year? I, I, I admit that he, I am kind of clueless on how he's been this year. He's actually having a really good year. He's He's batting... Uh, with a respectable batting average. I don't have it in front of me right now, but yeah, he has 276. I got it right here. 276, 315, 544. Uh, with 18 I, if, bombs. If, actually, more than that, because he, he took Chris Sale deep oh, today. Right, yeah. Oh, that's, that's right. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> Matt, Matt chiming in with the dynamite drop. And by the way, I should mention, um, Michael Chavis was named the MVP of the, uh, the Carolina League All-Star game tonight um, that just came over the wire. Oh, so that's going to help him. It's huge, huge boost for his prospect status. You know, if if I'm the Royals, I'm I'm probably asking for Travis. If I'm Dombrowski, I'm not giving up Travis. Um, in part because you've got Devers, but I mean, you, you just need a stopgap for this year. I don't, I don't know if that's going to be enough. Maybe it will be. Um, it's it's not necessarily a great market for for third baseman. I don't think. Right. Um, I don't think there's this. I think I may have seen. It's, recently, it's basically not gonna be a lot of demand. It's Frazier and it's Mustakis and then it's yeah. who knows. Huge, huge drop off. Yeah, Johnny Peralta. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if he'll go for it. Um, I've I've learned recently that I know nothing in terms of the trade packages. Kind of starting with the the deals for Kimbrel and uh, you know Araldis Chapman and and kind of. Uh, who was, who was the one that went to um, Houston? Why am I blanking on his name? Ken Giles. Oh, yeah. Um, the, you the know, Ken these, Giles these package pitches. was impressive. Yeah. You know, I, I, it kind of taught me that I don't know squat about that kind of stuff, what, what teams are wanting. Um, I, you know, it might depend on when the Royals see Chavis. Right. Um, you know, did they like him when he was a prep? Um, do they believe the bats for real? I think he's going to need to keep hitting like this through – you know, at least when he gets traded, I assume this would be a deal at the trade deadline if it does go down. But, <laughs> um, sorry, uh, but yeah, it, it'll be. I'll throw a solid maybe on that one. Well, perhaps. Like, I live in D.C. The politicians are getting to me. I, I apologize. <laughs> perhaps the the solution here is to make it a true Dave Dombrowski trade and and make it a four for one with an, a Nuri Tavares in there as well. Yeah, well, you know, it would probably be, um, you know, the, the the guy that I bet might move at the deadline. I'll throw a name out there for for your listeners in uh, Joan Martinez, who's a right-handed relief pitcher who's pitching for Lowell right now. We saw him in spring training. He's a, he dials the fastball up to 91, 91 to 95 mile per, miles per hour with some life, uh, a slider at 84 to 86. He's the, the type of profile of guy that the Red Sox made a living off of trading at the trade deadline for a number of years. It's, you know, Raul Alcantara and Frankie Montas and, um, you know, a couple of other guys that were like that, just kind of young, 
usually IFA Dominican signees that were in low A or short season A firing the ball. Uh, Roman Mendez was a number one. They tra- another one they traded to Texas. He's the type of guy that I bet maybe add Johan Martinez to the deal just to make it a four for one Dombrowski trade. All right. um, maybe make a player be named later that they name in, in December or something just to make complete the effect. But well, uh, yeah, maybe that's the deal they make. Who knows? Please no think, more shortstops uh, or outfielders. <laughs> I think Dombrowski throws Logan Allen in there again just just for old time's sake. Maybe he's in a different organization, but that shouldn't stop him. No, why? Why? You trade everybody you've got, start trading other teams, guys. Yeah, I, I think that's fair game. Well, um, l- let's get some plugs in here. Uh, we, we plugged the crap out of you, by the way, last week, even though we didn't know you, we were going to have you on as a guest. Um, I just kept mentioning how good Sox Prospects was at, at coverage and uh, in, in your podcast, so we'll plug that again. Please uh, go out there and uh, listen to the Sox Prodcast. Blah, Sox prospects podcast i can still talk after it took me like three years to be able to say it so don't feel bad <laughs> um and again you can follow matt at maddie maddie 2000 and chris at sp chris hatfield uh and go to socks prospects for all of your socks prospects news it really is the best site that's where we uh, get our information from as well as our own bp uh scouts uh combination of the two is always what we go off of here um you can find our show uh, on iTunes and Stitcher, as well as the Sox Prospects show on both of those. So please go on, rate and review both of those shows. Give both of those shows your comments because uh, that's how both of us grow. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you have some nice things to say about us or some not nice things to say, go on and say <laughs> them there. Uh, but it, keep the not nice things to yourself. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Please say no, it. I- it's funny. We actually, I can throw this out there. We we say the same thing on ours, and we we had a comment once that I had to read on our on our podcast where, basically, a guy came on, and said, "Oh, I love the insight from you know Ian and you know and and Matt who was who was uh, not Matt Corey, a different Matt, who was you know there was the three of us were the main guys. Ian and Matt do a great job on <laughs> Sox Prospects podcast, and it was just the most." backhanded compliment i could have ever received of like you do a great show i'm gonna talk about the other guys uh, so yeah i mentioned both both jake and matt when you when you have a comment on this show please it's it just just for everyone's egos yeah um, it's just a nice thing to do. It, it, i did nothing and i deserve nothing but uh, <laughs> deserve yeah. everything Matt. matt Corey's <laughs> ego needs a lot of stroking these days that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. Well, um, Chris, I, I can't say enough how much we enjoyed this. Uh, it's always amazing uh, talking prospects. That's kind of what piqued my interest to getting into writing. Um, so um, it, it's always just awesome to get back there and, and chat about this stuff. We really, really appreciate all the insights. Oh, beautiful. Well, it's, it's been my pleasure, guys. And uh, I appreciate you having my, both me and uh, and Firefly the Cat on the show. And uh I hope I hope at least to come on myself again sometime, although I can't speak for her. So it, it's been a pleasure, and we'll have to do it again sometime. Well, that sounds great to us. Uh, for those of you out there, uh, we will be back with you next week, uh, similar time. And uh, thank you for listening and downloading or streaming. And uh, we will be with you next week. Bye.